Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Apaz round his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain an understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. The second reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until, the end of, until time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards the heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but didn't, I did not understand. 
So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this book, Daniel, that we've been looking at this term. And we pray now that you would continue to speak to us through this part of your word by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes as we've just been singing. Help us to see and to hear what this means for us in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you a, a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person? An optimist or a pessimist? Are your days full of problems or opportunities? Do the clouds have silver linings or are they actually just full of rain that's about to fall on your head? When you wake each day, do you think one day closer to death or do you think, fantastic, one more day to live? Well, we can argue about whether optimism or pessimism is more justified, given the state of the world and uh, even given what Christians believe about Jesus. But here's the thing. Both optimism and pessimism, in their kind of purest forms, are based on the fact that no one really knows the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week next year or in a hundred years and so what we're doing is we're constantly trying to second guess the future and both optimists and pessimists think that their way of second guessing the future is the better approach and will lead to a happier outcome in the in the long run but what if we could know the future what if we could know how things will pan out in the world rather than being merely optimists or pessimists that would mean we could actually be realists. No longer hoping for the best or expecting the worst, but being realistic about the future because we know what is coming. Well, that is the perspective of these final chapters of Daniel as we close off this series that we've been looking at through this term. These final chapters, as we began to hear in the two readings that we had, they are hard for modern readers to kind of get our heads around. They're a style of literature, as we've said before, called apocalyptic, which doesn't mean what we think it means necessarily. It means revealing, making known, revelation. And much of the message of the book so far has been about revealing, making known to God's people in exile what is really going on. So helping them to see, we've seen chapter after chapter, they're helping them to see the true king 
isn't Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Cyrus. The true king is God himself. He's in charge. Trust him. But if you've been with us, you'll remember that time has moved on for Daniel. He's now an old man, and he and God's people are right at the end of the 70 years in Babylon. And uh, we know from, from other things that the Bible tells us, King Cyrus is about to send them home in fulfillment of the promises that Jeremiah made. So the question is, okay, what's going to happen next? Is it all going to be plain sailing from here when they get back to Jerusalem? Is that it? Is it going to be absolutely brilliant from then on for God's people? That's the question. And that's where we are at the start of chapter 10, when Daniel has this vision of a man while he's standing on the banks of the river Tigris. 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 One of the two. The substance of the vision that he then has is chapters 11 and 12. And that's why we're studying these three chapters at once, because they, they, they are kind of one unit in the way that the rest of the chapters of Daniel are, um, they all start, you know, every time a chapter starts, something new happens, something fresh happens, it's different from the previous one, so it's kind of a new unit. Actually, 10 to 12 all run one to the next, starting with this um, vision that Daniel receives, and then essentially 11 and 12 give us the content of that vision that he's been given. So, this man who comes to Daniel and gives him this message. It's not quite clear exactly who he is. So some people think, well, it looks an awful lot like the vision of Jesus at the, book of the, beginning, at the beginning of the book of Revelation in the New Testament, at the end of the New Testament. So we kind of think, well, could this be a kind of vision of Jesus before he came to earth and was, was incarnate? Is it a kind of pre-incarnate Christ? Well, verse 13, if you look down... As he talks, we heard this in the reading, um, he needs a bit of help from Michael, who's one of the other angels. He can't quite get what his job done by himself. So probably this isn't actually pre-incarnate Jesus, because he probably wouldn't need the help of Michael if, he, if it was him. Probably this is just another angel. But either way, the point is, it's an angel with a message from God, a revelation, an apocalypse, about the future. The future is known, he says to Daniel. And in the light of that, God's people need no longer choose between being optimists or pessimists. They can be realists and they can be wise in a world gone mad. That word wise, did you hear that at the, in, in the end of chapter 12? It's the uh, the word that is applied to God's people a couple of times. So actually, yeah, before this, in the, in the end of chapter 11, verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many. Chapter 12, verse 2 then, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. So do you see, God's people here are being called the wise ones. Knowing the future makes God's people wise. It makes them know how to live now. If you know how the future's going to go, you know how to live now. That's the point. And that is still true today. And the message here that the angel gives to Daniel is get wise about suffering. 
suffering is going to come for God's people. Be ready. Don't be surprised. Be wise. And there's three main things to see from these chapters about suffering. You can see on the, on the sheet and on the screen behind me, here's the first one. Be wise. Suffering is certain for God's people. It's certain for God's people. So let's see, chapter 10, verse 1, we're told this message is about a great war. That's what we're going to be talking about. That's what chapter 11 then tells us a lot um, more about. Chapter 12, verse 1 calls it a time of distress. And so in particular, in, in, in chapter 11, we get this big account you can see if you cast your eyes over it, there's a lot of verses there, and that's why we didn't read it out. But you can, you can just see if you cast your eyes, you get, start to get the gist. It's basically a big battle between the kings of the south and the kings of the north. So, who are these kings? That's the question. Um, well, these events that are described in chapter 11 are events that you can then see happened in history after the time of the book of Daniel. And we've seen that before in the book of Daniel. We've seen it talking about various things that were looking forward to things that then happened in the kind of time, the few hundred years between this book being written and uh, sort of uh, in the sort of five to 600 BC and, the, uh, and then Jesus coming. So in that period, there are various things that this is looking forward to. Um, and so, um, in particular, you can see things which happen sort of towards the, the, around the second century BC. Now, we're not going to get into the details of this. There's an awful lot of detail here. But essentially, what's going on here is the kings of the south, if you imagine that Israel, Canaan, you know where Israel is. To the south is kind of Egypt and what became the kingdom of the Ptolemies. You know the, you, you know the Ptolemies? P. It's one of those funny words that starts with P, but it's a silent P. Ptolemies, um, they, they, were the, they were the kings of the south, that kind of empire. The kings of the north are the empire that swallows up Cyrus and the Persians. Cyrus and the Persians, in turn, had swallowed up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, who had, who had tried to swallow up God's people. So there's a lot of sort of empires coming and going there. Um, but that kind of empire that we end up with in about the second century BC is called the Seleucid Empire. Okay, Seleucid. Now, don't, you don't really need to know that, but it's just helping us to see this is pointing forwards to events that then actually happened in history. And in particular, by the end of the chapter, chapter 11, we are hearing again about a particularly dreadful king of the north. And we heard about him in chapter 8. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. So chapter 11, verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up with the abomination that causes desolation. So that is predicting what Antiochus Epiphanes then went on to do, which is to go into the temple in Jerusalem after it had been rebuilt and um, kind of set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. And this is, before that happened, this predicting that that would happen. Pretty uh, terrible thing. So that, that, that is the first thing for God's people to see here. Suffering is certain to come. But the thing about this is, it's not just a kind of interesting but largely irrelevant, if we're honest, history lesson for us in the 21st century. 
The reason is when Jesus came, he had a similar kind of message for God's people, and he presented it in the, in the terms of this vision. So Jesus, when he came, he said there would be rulers who would come and continue to make life difficult for God's people. He talked about the abomination that causes desolation in the temple again. So by the time Jesus is predicting that, they already knew about Antiochus Epiphanes and what had happened, and Jesus is saying this is going to happen again, and it is what happened. Um, after Jesus, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple completely in AD 70. But Jesus then, in telling his people in his time then, again makes it clear this still isn't just a history lesson. This sets the pattern for how things will always be for the people of God. Our lives will be marked by suffering. So what else did Jesus say? He said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. Peter, in the New Testament, writes in his first letter, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So can you see, this is the pattern. We're looking forwards at the time of Daniel to a period of time where God's people suffered in a particular way. But the point is, that is the pattern throughout history for God's people in all times and seasons. And so we need to be realists about this today. And I think that's particularly true today when you think one of the great idols of the modern world, particularly the modern West, is comfort and pleasure. Isn't that true? And that affects then how Christians view the world. So we often come to Christian faith with the expectation that if we're going to follow Jesus, well, that means everything's going to be fantastic. And because, you know, what else could possibly be the point of following him if it doesn't lead to pleasure and happiness? Because it turns out our idol is still pleasure and happiness and so we're looking to Jesus to kind of provide a way to achieving that thing that we want and then when things go wrong and they don't go according to our plans we think oh no I'm, I must be doing something wrong or, or maybe I don't have enough faith maybe I'm not really a Christian maybe following Jesus isn't worth it after all do you see because in our world today we can't see how it could be possible to say that life is meant to be about anything else than just being as happy as you possibly can. But this is saying to us, no, don't be surprised. Suffering in this life and in this world is certain for God's people. Be a realist. So is life a struggle at the moment? Has it been in the past? Well, we need to know it will be. Don't be surprised. This is the normal Christian Life. That is what the angel wants Daniel and us to understand. But just when we might be starting to think, well, this, this realism sounds an awful lot like pessimism, well, hear this secondly. Secondly, we need to hear suffering is limited for God's people. That is the second big thing to see. So 
is limited. Part, part of the apocalypse, the revelation, the peeling back on reality to see what's going on, is to see what is happening behind the scenes. That's um, one of the things that we've seen through the book of Daniel. So chapter 10, verse 20, if you look at that, chapter 10, verse 20, if you flip back down here on earth, it looks like there's a human conflict going on between kings. But chapter 10, verse 20 tells us actually behind the scenes, the angel is involved. And all this suffering and war is not random and out of control. And if we just glance through then this, the, the, the big account of the, the, uh, the, the war in, in chapter 11, if we glance through that, one of the striking things is that the conflict and suffering that is described is very much not in the control of the human participants. So even though these people, they're kings... They are the be-all and end-all in, in that world. You know, everyone thinks, well, whatever they want, they will get. They've got all the power that you could possibly have. But just look through with me. Just look through chapter 11. See this. So verse 4, just uh, his empire will be broken up. Verse 9, the king of the north will retreat. Verse 12, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. Then the end of verse 17 if you look uh, top of the, the second column there, the king of the north's plans will not succeed or help him. Verse 19, he will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Do you see? Verse 20, what about his successor? Well, no, in a few years he will be destroyed. Verse 27, the two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. So do you get the point? Do you get the point? These kings are causing untold damage to those around them, including God's people. But over and over again, the refrain comes, it won't work. They won't succeed. Their plans will be foiled. And in the end, uh, verse 45, at the end of chapter 11, the king of the north will come to his end and no one will help him. You see that? That is mighty Antiochus Epiphanes. And then, after all of that, after these great kings have come to nothing, finally, chapter 12, verse 2. Look at this. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. What does that say? Do you see, that those who sleep in the dust of the earth, probably they are people who have died at the hands of these mighty rulers through these battles, and others as well. But no, they will rise to everlasting life, while those who are wicked will rise to everlasting contempt. Do you see? Suffering is limited for God's people. The end will come. Resurrection will follow. And human history tells us that over and over again as dictators rise and fall. Empires do not last. Human pride leads to a fall. And that is encouragement to us when we suffer. It won't always be like this. And how much more do Christians 
living this side of Jesus, having come, know this. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the dead. No matter what suffering we go through now as we follow him, one day we will rise to be with him forever. What a wonderful message to share with one another, whatever is going on right now. We need to hear this, don't we? We heard in the prayers. We've got four people in the church family with significant, painful bereavements, even in this room. This is the news that we need to hear, isn't it? That one day, those who trust in Jesus will rise. That death is not the end. It is merely the gateway to life with God and the Lord Jesus in a perfect world with new bodies and a new creation. That is here, just seeing before Jesus came, they just saw the shadows of this. They could just see that this was the future hope. How much more do we know the, what this is about now that Jesus has died and risen from the dead? We need to know, we need to remind one another, don't we? This sadness, suffering, it doesn't carry on like this forever. It will not always be like this. And that, that message is underlined at the end of chapter 12 then. A, a, another man asks the first man. Uh, Do you see that verse 6, bottom of page 899? Give us a time scale. He says, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And uh, you know, how long, in other words, how long will this period of suffering be before the end comes? And the answer that you get, so I wonder what you thought of this, is slightly cryptic, isn't it? So verse 7, over the page, it will be a time, times, and half a time. Now, what is that? Um, that it's, it sounds strange to us, but we've met these times before in Daniel. So in, in, in chapter 4, we heard about seven times or years were allotted to Nebuchadnezzar for judgment. So the number seven symbolizes completion. And in this apocalyptic literature, numbers, you don't take them literally, they're, they're symbols for things. So number seven is complete, and, and Nebuchadnezzar was going to have seven times, seven years, as a complete period of judgment. Well now, time, times, and half a time is one plus two, because that's times, plus a half. Now, I have a degree in mathematics, and I can tell you one plus two plus a half is three and a half. And I can also tell you as a bonus, three and a half is half of seven. Okay? And that seems to be the point of what, is, what time, times, and half a time is about, that it is not a full period of judgment and not a full period of what we might deserve. It is a limited period. It is half of that. Not as much as we might deserve. And, and that equates to the, roughly, to the, to the 1,290 days in verse 11. Do you see that? That is roughly three and a half years. Though um, that time then becomes 1,335 days in the following verse, which is slightly puzzling. It's still three and a half years, but a bit longer. It seems that that seems to be emphasizing that this period of suffering is, is a bit mysterious. It is slightly uncertain. But 
The certainty is that God is in charge of the length of it. That's the point. And that is what matters. This is not about literal lengths of time. The point is God has determined that this period of suffering will have an end. It will not continue like this forever. And so Jesus says, doesn't he? He says, no one knows the date that he will return, but God does. God knows when Jesus will return. This world with the suffering that is caused by sin will not continue like this forever. It is limited. So be encouraged. Suffering is certain but limited for God's people. And then there is a third and final encouragement before we finish. Suffering will refine God's people. The suffering God's people experience will not be pointless. Look at their, how their suffering is described in, 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 back in chapter 11. I know we keep dotting around, but these are, there's so much here to see. So, so halfway up, page 899 on the left there, uh, verses 33 to 35. Verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, before it will still come at the appointed time. And we get that idea of refining, purifying, being made spotless. It comes again in chapter 12, verse 10. You see that over the page? Exactly the same kind of language. And this, again, is the constant refrain of Scripture. We get told this over and over and over again. God graciously uses the hard times and the suffering that we go through to make us more like Jesus, to make us ready for eternity. So it's as if, think about, I sometimes think about this kind of image. It's as if we're being pulled up the side of a cliff to the top. So it's a huge cliff. So there's a picture of a cliff there. But you know, imagine, imagine you're being pulled up a cliff. And there's a long way to go. And you're kind of being hauled up the side of this cliff by a rope. You look down and it's pretty scary because you think, I could fall at any time. And it's a long way down. And so what we frail and sinful human beings do is we, we try to save ourselves. So we add on our own ropes to the harness we cling on to bits of cliff as we go past. And we think, oh, I'll just better attach myself here in case I fall. If I hold on to this rock, everything will be okay. And in one sense, the suffering that we go through is the kind of burning up of those ropes that we try and attach ourselves to the cliff. You know, we try and attach ourselves to career or money or family, or academic success. And we say, oh, you know, these, if, I, if I invest everything in this, this will save me. This will make everything okay. But then suffering comes, and, and we lose whatever that thing was. And we lose our grip, and it gets taken from our hands. When that happens to the non-Christian, they will fall. And that's the, the words that Daniel uses here. Chapter 12, verse 10, the wicked will continue 
to be wicked and one day will rise to everlasting contempt, as he puts it in verse 2. So the non-Christian hasn't got anything else pulling up the the cliff and when the suffering comes, that's it, there's nothing left. But when it happens to the Christian, when the Christian goes through hard times, just as we've been hearing, is inevitable but limited, and those ropes and those footholds and those bits of rock that we're desperately trying to cling on to, when they fail and give way, what we find is that there is actually one rope holding us That will never fail. And that rope is Jesus. And he's getting us to the top no matter what. And the journey of the Christian life is about realising if I've got Jesus, then actually I've really got all I need for life. Because I've got him. Nothing and no one can take him away from me. And the refining of suffering proves that to us. It tells us, yeah, look, you've got Jesus. It's okay. So yes, it's painful as we we lose um, what what we love or what we're holding on to or what we're clinging on to, but actually we have got what is holding us and that rope is not going to fail. That is the point. I heard recently about a Romanian pastor living under the dictator Ceausescu and Christians were persecuted under his rule and hunted out in order to be killed and this pastor said their greatest threat is to kill us our greatest victory is to die because we know the future and no dictator no king of the north or the south or anywhere else can take that away from us see in the end We know today, don't we? In the end, all that matters is that book. Do you see that in verse 1? This book that is opened. At that time, everyone, this is chapter 12, verse 1, page 899. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. And so as we suffer now, we go through ups and downs, And as we work hard now with all that life offers and demands of us at school and at work and at home, the vision Daniel saw is saying, be a realist, be wise, see the future, realise what matters in life. It's not what people think of you, it's not the size of your bank balance, it's not the area of London that you live in, it's not your job, it's not what you get in your exams. On that day, those things won't be the question. The question will be, is your name written in the book of life? And getting your name written in the book of life is as simple as accepting the invitation to trust and follow Jesus. And once we're doing that, we can be realistic about our world. And then we can resist evil, as he tells us in chapter 11, verse 32. We can instruct many, verse 33. We can proclaim Jesus to the world around us, even though it's tough, even though it's painful. Verse 34 in in chapter 11, we will even receive a little help, he says. Jesus promises, I'm with you always as you wait for me to return. So all then that is left is chapter 12, verse 13, the last verse in this book.
As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then, at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for helping us to be realistic about the future, helping us to see what is coming, helping us to realise it won't always be like this, that suffering is certain, but it is limited. We pray for one another. We pray especially for those amongst us and known to us and loved by us who are particularly struggling with sadness, with grief, with hard times right now. We pray for brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering at the hands of authorities who make life very difficult to be a Christian. We thank you that even in ways that we can't always understand, you will use these times of suffering to help us to see that what we need is Jesus. You want to refine us, you want to refine our faith so that we hold on to Jesus knowing that he is holding on to us. And so we keep our eyes on him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.